Dr. Bob McAfee, a retired surgeon, lives with his wife Doris on the same street in Portland, Maine that he grew up on. He had coveted the house they live in ever since he watched it being built in the 50s when he was in college. And when it went on the market, he snapped it up. It's where he and Doris raised their four children, and it's where they hope to live out the rest of their days. That's the plan, yeah. How do you plan for something like that? Is there anything additional that you had to do to make it possible? No, we could have lived in any facility. Uh, because I knew the neighborhood and felt comfortable with it, I'd had no desire to go and live in Cape Elizabeth or Falmouth or South Portland or any place other than right here. Dr. McAfee remembers every store and business that used to be in his neighborhood when he was a boy, from the soda fountain where he and his friends drank vanilla Cokes and solved the problems of the world, to the bakery where he folded his newspapers every morning. Yeah, it was, uh, and I was a paper boy. I had, I had two paper, double routes, uh, this route here and the one down uh, in the Rosemont area, morning paper route, so... Uh, and Don Ledbetter ran the uh, bakery. Uh, he's the one that set up the Two Lights restaurant out there. Yep. And then a little house next to it, that's where he retired to. Huh. But every morning, in the winter particularly, they drop my papers off in front of his place. I'd take them, put them inside, fold them. He'd let me come in where it was nice and warm, fold the papers. And then just before I were to leave, he'd come out with a donut or something and give it to me, pat me on the back. You, you go, have a good day. They talk about the good old days. Well, it was. After high school, Dr. McAfee went to Bates College in Lewiston and in 1960 graduated from Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston. He was the first person in his family to become a doctor. During his internship, he decided he wanted to be a surgeon. Why did you decide to become a surgeon? Well, in the old days, you had... Uh, Everyone had to have a rotating internship after medical school. You had to spend a year rotating through medicine, surgery, pediatrics, emergency medicine. Then uh, you had some electives. Uh, and it obvious to me when I got in the operating room that that's where I wanted to be. That's uh, as exciting place it could be, a therapeutic place. At the same time, it was a much more personal service to a patient than checking their blood pressure, you know. And so I said, that's what I want to do. I want to be in surgery. That was during the time in which vascular surgery, blood vessel surgery, started. And synthetic grafts were being made. Uh, techniques were developed. One could replace blood vessels. Prior to that, you had cadaver vessels that were kept in the freezer that didn't work very well and weren't sized or anything. You had to sort of take what you had. I, I got very much interested on the ground floor of that, and I did a lot of vascular surgery. He stopped doing surgery in 1996. He says his greatest joy was caring for patients. But by participating in the Cumberland County Medical Society, the Maine Medical Association, and eventually the American Medical Association, or the AMA, Dr. McAfee truly found his voice and learned that he could make a difference on a national level, a big difference. When you start, when you deal with the health system, you begin to say, there's got to be a better way. And I know a better way. And I need, I need to be sure that my voice is heard. So you start at the county society level, and I was president of the county society. Then you go on to the state level, and I was president of the state association. Then I became the delegate to the AMA. 
Dan Hanley sent me, the alternate delegate one year was sick, Dick Laney from Skowhegan. He said, I'm going to send you in his place. You, you're bitching all the time. You go ahead and fix things up and go down there. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll do it. So I went, and the first meeting, I was just so impressed with the fact that one person standing up in the House of Delegates saying something could turn that entire organization in another direction if he or she was right. In 1984, he decided to run for a seat on the AMA's Board of Trustees. He won and served three terms. In 1994, he was elected president, the first and only doctor from Maine to be elected president of the American Medical Association since it was founded in 1847. When I won, they invite you down front with your wife to accept the accolades of the House and give a little thank you speech. And... uh, I said, never in my wildest dreams could I imagine that I'd be president of the AMA. I said, but then again, in my wildest dreams, I rarely think of the AMA. <laughs> that, made the, that made the newspapers, that made the wire service. <laughs> so what did you accomplish in your role with the AMA that you're most proud of? I used the theme uh, family violence. The AMA hadn't looked upon violence, particularly family violence, as a public health problem. It's a crime. We accept it. It's a crime, but it's a crime for the legal profession to deal with. I said, no, those patients are in our offices, in our clinics, in the emergency ward every single day. Why don't we have a more organized plan to deal with these, particularly alert doctors to how to pick up on violence, how to screen for it, how to refer for it, etc. I think my greatest legacy that I'm in, have you had an examination recently by a doctor? Did they ask you about violence in your home? They ask you if you feel safe in your home. That's my legacy. That's right. But it's not his only legacy. When his tenure as president of the AMA ended, he turned his focus to his home state of Maine. Most of my time has been spent at the University of New England. Uh, I accepted the appointment to the Board of Trustees right after I finished with AMA. They gave me an honorary degree. Um... At the same time, they gave an honorary degree to the head of the Osteopathic Association, who was a good friend of mine from Rhode Island, Larry Bouchard. And we were both the trustees together. But I got very much interested in, in saying uh, it's time to stop any animosity we have between DOs and MDs in this community. If one looks at the primary care uh, training of doctors now, the vast majority are in the DO field, and they're going out and populate the state of Maine. MDs, listen to where your referral sources are coming from. Here's where we need to come together as a unified profession. Uh, and so I said, I'm going to work to help them. And once I got started, we said, you know, we need a, uh, a pharmacy school. We don't have a pharmacy school in Northern New England. So we brought together all the uh, major chains, CVS and Costco and Walgreens and the others, and they all agreed to kick in some money. In addition to that, we did, we built the brand new dental school. We expanded the medical school from 100 to 175 doctors a year. This College of Health Professions has similarly expanded with it, over 200 graduates a year. So this past year, we had 52 new dentists, 82 pharmacists, 175 doctors, and over 200 people in the nurse anesthesia, AOT, PT, dental hygiene, etc. We're the largest supplier of health manpower in northern New England, if not all of New England. I, I can't think of a better way for me to have spent my time. 
I got, they named me a trustee emeritus when I finished my regular trustee. So that means you're there forever. That means you're there forever if you want to go. You don't vote. But they made me chairman of the advancement committee for this last capital campaign. So that I came in, we raised, they, they said, please get us 40 million, we got 62 million. And uh, I was pleased with that. You are not retired. You don't, I mean, like you don't earn an income anymore, but no. you're not retired from life by any means. No. And you have no intention. No. He has been appointed to one position after another by every Maine governor but Paul LePage since John Reed in the 60s. And if Maine's current governor, Janet Mills, asks him to do something, he'll probably say yes. But he has noticed that his body has started to slow down a bit. I think I hit a wall around 79, 80. I could do anything. I could take care of my property, rake leaves, mow the lawn, shovel snow, and had no problem doing any of these things. We have a small cottage up at Forest Lake, maintain that place, put the boat in every year, etc. Beginning about age 80 for me, things started to bother me. My, my back, my balance, my uh, sleeping, uh, my physical strength. And I started developing you know, sarcopenia, which is a loss of muscle mass uh, that you have uh, simply by sitting a lot <laughs> and not doing as much, etc. And as a consequence, I've I have a lot more empathy for people who who need help getting in and out of a chair, an automobile, uh, uh, going up and down stairs. Do you accept help readily from other people? I have begun recently to do so. Yeah. And it's something that you might not have been so eager to do a few years ago. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and not a lot, but occasionally if rare instances, but I can see the need in the future for doing doing so. Do you ever act in a, a certain way that will sort of influence how people see you? Like, might you feel weak, but you refuse to let people know about it? Yeah, you know, you hide it. And how do you hide it, and why? Well, you try and do things a little faster than you should. Uh... Family won't let me get on ladders anymore, which is probably a wise thing. Uh, I, I can't go up and clean my roof and gutters the way I used to. So I hire people to do this now, which that bothers me to have to do that. But nonetheless, I realize the time has come for that to happen. So it's hard sometimes to accept those kinds of changes. It is. It is. But when you say 84, it, it isn't as hard. You know, I never thought that was very old, and I think it is kind of old. Do you have a goal to live to be a certain age? My mother lived to be 102. Uh, Dad died in his 70s. I'm, I don't have any desire to live to, to a number if, if the function isn't, uh, isn't there. You enjoy life, don't you? I do. I, uh, I, the Red Sox won yesterday. The Bruins won yesterday in overtime. I had to stay up until both of those things were finished. Uh, they're not going to play tonight kind of rain, I'm sure, but I, I'm going to look just the same. Uh, I like to uh, watch the sports stations. Uh, sports take my time, I think. What do you appreciate most about your social life? 
My wife and I have season tickets to Portland Stage, and I'm glad we do it that way because it makes us go. <laughs> we have season tickets to Brunswick in the summer of the musicals. I go to every show at uh, Saco River. We're going out there tonight. Uh, that keeps us busy because we go out to dinner first and then we go to the show, and uh, we know at least that's part of our thing. What makes it a good day for you? Sun. So this isn't a good day? No. I'm trying to make it a good day. I'm here. <laughs> You've brightened up my day. Every day is a good day. Uh, if it isn't, you're going to make it a good day. I'm guessing you don't ever feel lonely? No, but I will tell you that I have become interested in loneliness. Uh, there's only five things that influence how long and how well you live. Uh, genetics. And few of us can choose our parents wisely. Two is the environment. Take us a long time to realize the importance of clean air, clean water, and everything else. Three is social circumstance. And if you're unemployed, if you're poor, if you live in inadequate housing or no housing, and recently if you're lonely, it's a given that your health is worse. That loneliness was brought to us by Surgeon General Murthy, the previous Surgeon General, uh, saying, it is important enough for you all to be aware of that loneliness. So ask about loneliness when the patient comes here. Be aware that when that patient has lost a spouse, that that next six months is a terrible time. And it may account for the absence of taking medication, the failure to get the prescriptions, uh, all these things. Uh, the fourth is medical care that you can receive, but it's surprising to me to realize that only about 10% of the determination of how well and how long you live is because of your medical care. But the fifth factor responsible for half of how well and how long you live is personal behavior. And if you abuse yourself, smoke, drink, use drugs, lack of exercise, it's a given that your health is going to be less. So, yes, loneliness is an important social factor in the determination of how well and how long you live. Do you have any advice or words of wisdom that you haven't already shared for people? Enjoy life. Every day uh, there's so many opportunities to give and by so giving you do enjoy life more. Uh, think of your children and grandchildren and how you can make this world a better place for them. Uh, think of your neighbors uh, just be grateful that you're alive and that your health allows you to live as long as you have. Is there something you would like people to know about you? He was a good doctor. That's my headstone. He was a good doctor. I, I can't think of any other accolade, and I've received a lot. Uh, he was a good doctor. And because he is a good doctor, he felt it was important to write an op-ed in the Portland Press-Herald recently expressing his concern about declining vaccination rates. I've asked people why they don't do it. There's one theme that comes through that bothers me a great deal. And that's it. they no longer have the faith and trust in their doctor or the medical profession because of bad actors, Doctors writing prescriptions for opioids for money. Uh, wrong side of issues like abortion and other things. 
dishonesty that's by one which taints the entire profession. And that's, you know, we've got to work on that because that's the problem. You've been listening to Conversations About Aging, a Catching Health podcast. I'm Diane Atwood. To learn more about Dr. McAfee's many contributions, to listen to other conversations about aging, and to read my blog posts on health and wellness, visit catchinghealth.com. This podcast was made possible by our sponsors, Avita of Stroudwater, a memory care facility, and Stroudwater Lodge, an assisted living community, both in Westbrook, Maine. You'll find out more about them at northbridgecos.com. A shout out to Smith Atwood Video Services for editing the podcast. See what else they have to offer at smithatwood.com. And I'd also like to thank Tom Muser for his support. He's director of the Center for Excellence in Aging and Health at the University of New England. Tom will be using some of the interviews for research on aging issues in Maine.